episode 26, Shogun! Hello and welcome to the How to Play podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, and this podcast is about learning and teaching games. In each episode, I give an explanation of how to play a game, just as if I was sitting across the table from you and we were about to play the game together. If you like the show, join and participate in our guild at Board Game Geek. For more information about all the How to Play podcast episodes, the corresponding teaching guides, and the discussion forums, refer to the How to Play Geek list, for which you can find a link there at the guild. You can also check out our website, www.howtoplaypodcast.com, where you can support the show with a PayPal donation, and I can be contacted at the guild on Board Game Geek or directly at my email address, howtoplaypodcast at msn.com. Now let's get to today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the How to Play podcast. I apologize. It's been so long since my last episode, but today we have a great episode for you. Today we're going to be talking about Shogun. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, coming to you from the How to Play studios in western New York, and this episode was recorded on March 19th, 2011. Before we get going, I want to do a few quick plugs here. Uh, I'm very excited to announce our very first How to Play video. If you haven't seen it from all the announcements I put up there on BoardGameGeek, I was fortunate enough to have a listener help me out and add video to one of our How to Play episodes. He took Tigris and Euphrates and added great video to go along with it. Randall spent a lot of time on this, and it turned out really well. So if, if you're still looking to learn Tigris, you definitely need to check out this How to Play video. There are links on the website or at the Guild. Next, I want to plug my new podcast, Ludology. If you haven't heard about this... Jeff Engelstein and myself have really worked hard to put together this new project called Ludology. Ludology means the study of games. And this is sort of replacing the musing segments I used to do at the end of each episode, where I used to discuss mechanics, elements of games, and all sorts of things that interest me. And I have a great co-host with which to discuss these topics, Jeff Engelstein from the Dice Tower. We already have three episodes up and more are to come, so if you haven't checked that out yet, you definitely need to go over to ludology.net or check out Ludology on iTunes. And Ludology and How to Play are proud partners of the Dice Tower Network. If you aren't a subscriber to the Dice Tower, well, you should be. It's, It's the podcast out there for game news, game reviews, and excellent segments from contributors all over the world. But enough plugs. Let's get to today's game. Today's game is Shogun. This is a hotly requested game there at the guild, and it's a game that I absolutely love. It is my 11th favorite game of all time. Now this game is reminiscent of the classic genre, Dudes on a Map, which most people are familiar with, with Risk, in which you have armies in different countries and you're trying to expand out and take as much territory as possible. But Shogun takes that genre and takes it to a much higher level. There's a lot of great strategic decisions that you have to make in this game due to the main mechanic of assigning your actions with each province, which is an excellent mechanic. And then you combine that with the best battle system ever created, which is throwing your cubes into this little cardboard tower, which is unique, very exciting, and a lot of fun to do. It's probably the most famous mechanic of this game in that you you take these cubes and you throw them in this tower and that resolves the battle. It's very original, but I think what people don't realize is that the whole game that was designed around that cube tower is just as wonderful as the cube tower itself. So this is a fantastic game, even if you're like me, a person who doesn't really like war games or risk style games, those dudes on a map type games, you'll love this one. 
So if you don't own it, I recommend you pick it up and learn it right here on the How to Play podcast. Shogun was designed by Dirk Hen. It plays between 3 and 5, but I recommend 4 and 5, with the sweet spot really being the full complement of 5 players. And it takes about 3 hours to play. This game was designed in 2006, but it really is sort of just a reworking of the original game Wallenstein, which was designed in 2002. Complexity rating. This game is a black diamond. It has quite a few rules. It does have a long play time. It does take about three hours to play, like I said. But this game is generally pretty intuitive, and you're involved throughout the whole process. Everyone is planning their actions at the same time, and when the actions are revealed, those stages go by rather quickly. So you really feel involved the whole time. There's, there's not a lot of downtime, and everything really makes sense when you explain it, but there is quite a lot to get through. So this is certainly a gamer's game, but one that you can pick up and play the first time you give it a go. So without any further delay, let's get to our explanation. As always, I recommend having the game right there in front of you, the rule book, or access to the web so you can see the board, the components, and that will give you a visual understanding as I explain the rules to you. A final note before we get started. As in this episode, we are talking about a Japanese-themed board game. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't note that as of this recording, a terrible disaster hit Japan just over a week ago. I know that there's actually several listeners of the How to Play podcast there in Japan, and just know that we're thinking of you and wishing the very best for your recovery as a country. I know how much the world community appreciates everything that the great country of Japan has contributed, whether it be in academics, technology, or their unique cultural contributions. So please take my crude cultural stereotypes with a sense of humor, and know that this teasing is with a great deal of respect. So from the How to Play Studios Japan, this one's for you. It's time for the hook. Part one, the hook. What the game is about. Welcome to Shogun. In this game, you're a daimyo, a warlord in Japan in the 16th century. You seek to bring honor on your clan by claiming as much territory as possible, and by building buildings on those territories that you control to make your territories more valuable. The game is played in eight rounds, broken into two groups of four rounds to represent two years, with each round representing a season. The spring, summer, and fall rounds are the active rounds, in each of these three rounds, you're going to be able to take actions. Then each of those three sets of active rounds will be followed by winter, which is simply a scoring round. In each of the active rounds, spring, summer, and fall, you'll begin by planning your actions, which is really the heart of the game. At the beginning of the game, you will control between seven and nine provinces, and you'll hold small cards with those provinces' names. You're going to have a player board in front of you with ten spots for the ten different possible actions. Then for each province, you'll choose one of the ten available actions, but you're only able to do each action once, simply by taking that province card and placing it on the action spot on your player board with which you want to do. The different actions include buying more armies, attacking a province, moving your armies, collecting resources, and building buildings to make the territory worth more points. And this is really where all the strategy of the game comes into play, of deciding which province should do which action. 
All the players are going to simultaneously decide all of their actions by playing their provinces face down on their player boards until all players are finished. Then it's time for action. One at a time, the actions are resolved in a specified order, and the players will place more cubes, buy buildings, buy armies, move their armies, and fight. Players will repeat that whole process two more times with the summer and fall rounds. So there are three total rounds of planning and resolving actions, and after which is the winter round. The winter round is simply a scoring phase. Players get points for the territories they control and the number of buildings in their territories. And this cycle of four rounds is repeated all over again. The players will play three active rounds by planning and resolving actions, and the game will conclude with the winter round for scoring. And at the end of the game, player who has earned the most points through claiming the most provinces and by having provinces with many buildings will be awarded the title of Shogun and win the game. Part 2 The Meat How to Play the So before I explain everything that happens on a turn, I want to focus on the most important part of the game, and that's planning your actions. Planning your actions! So as I stated in the hook, each player is going to have between 7 and 9 provinces, depending on the number of players that you're playing with. And how you decide which player has what province, there's a couple different ways to do that. There's a starting setup, Or there's rules for a variable setup, which we'll go over in the footnotes. But the important thing is, at the beginning of the game, you'll start with these seven to nine provinces, or or parts of Japan, and usually they'll be pretty much scattered all over the map. Each of these provinces that you start with will start with between two and five cubes, which represent your army, with which for you to start the game with. Each of those provinces, each turn, can do an action. And you represent that by placing that province's card. For example, one of the provinces is Hitachi. And if you want Hitachi to buy more armies, you're going to put them on that buy armies spot. There are 10 different actions with which for each province that you can choose. You can only do each of the actions with one province. And if you want a province to do none of those actions, you're also able to do that. Generally though, you're going to use most of your actions because more actions means you're doing more things, which is usually good. So say you had a four-player game, you'll have eight provinces and there's ten different actions that you can do with those eight different provinces. Let's go over what the ten different actions are. There's really only four different categories of what the actions do. They either give you more armies, and armies in this game are represented by your color cube. So giving you more cubes gives you more strength in a region. So one of the actions is to get more armies in that particular province. The next possible action is collecting resources. There are two important resources in the game, money and rice. Money is used to buy armies and buildings, and you have to have enough rice at the winter round or you suffer a severe penalty. The third type of action is a move or attack. You can simply move into a region where you already have cubes, or you can take your cubes to attack a region held by an opponent or a neutral province. And these move attack cards are the same card. There's an A card and a B card, and they have samurai swords on them. And they can be used for moving or attacking. And the last possible action is to buy buildings. There are three different types of buildings represented by these little cardboard chits, and you can simply pay money to put one of those buildings in your province. 
and you do that to make the province worth more victory points. So with each province, you'll either get more armies, use it to get resources, move or attack, or buy buildings. Or you'll simply do none of those things with that province. Let's go over each of those things in a bit more detail. Buying more armies. Three of the ten actions allow you to buy more armies for the province. There's a five army spot, a three army spot, and a one army spot. Buying five armies costs three dollars. Well, I'm going to call them dollars, but in this game, the money is actually represented by these little treasure chests. And so you'll be collecting and spending these treasure chests. For sake of simplicity, I'll call them dollars. So one of the actions is place five armies in a province for three bucks. Another one lets you get three army cubes for two dollars. The third spot to buy armies is a little bit different. You only get one army cube. This only costs one dollar but you're allowed to move some of those cubes into a friendly adjacent region. Has to be a region where you have some cubes. This spot really lets you fortify up for a future attack. Then, the two spots that let you collect resources. There's one spot to collect money, and another spot to collect rice. When you do either of these things, you need to keep in mind that you are this warlord, maintaining strict authoritarian control over all the peasants who you're making work for you and feed your armies and such. Generally, they're pretty meek, they're alright with that, until you ask them for stuff. So when you go on the money spot, you go to your peasants and you say, Give me your money. And then they say, No! And then you say, Give me your money or I stab you. And they say, Okay! But then they get really mad and they talk to all their peasant friends and, and they start getting mad and start thinking about doing mean and nasty things to you and your army. So when you take stuff from the peasants, whether it's money or rice, they get a revolt marker, meaning they're starting to get angry and might cause a revolt in that region. So you take one of these little green chips that shows the peasants and you put them in that region. And that means if you collect stuff from them again, they're going to rise up and try to kill you, which is usually bad. And just so you know, I'm going to use the terms farmer and peasant interchangeably here. So farmers and peasants both mean the same thing. There are these green cubes that you're repressing and stealing all the gold and rice from. So when you collect money, how much money you get depends on the province that you have. On each of the province cards, there's a listing of how much money, how much rice, and how many building spots that that province offers. So usually you're going to choose your province that gets you the most money in taxes as shown on the card. The amount of money each region gives you ranges from 3 to 7. So usually you're going to want to take money from the province that gives you the most money. You might have one that gives you 7. But then, of course, they'll get mad, so next turn you might take the money from the one that gives you six, and so on. When you take money, you put the revolt marker down on that province to show that they're mad. We'll get you! And then you take the treasure chest from the bank. Rice works very similarly. Each province has a varying amount of rice, ranging from two rice to five rice. And when you collect rice, you put a revolt marker down. And there's no rice tokens. Rice is represented on a chart. So you simply move yourself up on that chart to show how much rice that you have. So that's collecting resources. Next are the move attack cards. These cards have pictures of samurai swords on them. And there's an A move attack and a B move attack. You can use these simply just to move your armies from one province to another. Or you can use them to attack a province. Attacking means if you move into an empty province, that province is considered neutral. But you still must crush the peasant folk in there, so there's a battle. Or you can move into a province occupied by an opponent, in which case you and the opponent will fight it out. 
And remember, you can also just use it to move your armies from that province to another province which you already hold without fighting. In order to maintain ownership of a province, you always must have a cube in that province. So when you move to a new province, you must leave at least one cube behind to show that you retain control of that province. You're not allowed to even just voluntarily give up the province. You must always leave one behind when you move into a different province. This is particularly important when you're thinking about attacking. If you only have three cubes in a province where you're going to attack, you're not going to be able to attack with three cubes. You're only going to be able to attack with two cubes because you have to leave one of them behind. So there are two provinces with which you can move or attack a neutral province to get more territory or attack an opponent's province. So there are three actions left that you can do and those are to buy buildings. There are three different buildings in the game, and the three different actions are to buy each of those different buildings. One action is to build a theater, which is one buck. The next one is the temple, which costs two bucks. And the third is the castle, which costs three bucks. And this is pretty simple. If you want to build a temple, when this action comes up, you would pay your two dollars, you would take a temple, and you would place it in that province. You want to do that because building buildings makes your provinces worth more points. The castles and the temples specifically can even give you more victory points, which is why they cost more, which I'll go over more in the scoring. The other thing you have to keep in mind is that each province has a limited number of building spots. This is shown on the province card and in the province by little black squares. There's going to be one, two, or three spots with which for you to build buildings. So when you play a building there, you play it on top of that black square. In order for you to build another building there, you have to have another black square with which to build on it. In addition, you can't have duplicate buildings in a province. You can't have two castles or two theaters. You have to have different kinds of buildings. So those are the 10 different actions with which you're gonna choose which province is gonna do which action. There are three actions to buy more armies, two to collect resources, two to move or attack, and three to buy buildings. Let's talk about what to consider when you're choosing which province to do which action. First of all, the action cards. Now, how do we know how these actions are resolved? Well, this is a really cool mechanic. It's one of my favorite parts of the game. There are 10 different action cards laid out at the beginning of the round. The first five are face up, and the last five are face down. And each action card shows you one of the actions. For example, it might be collect chess, attack A, build castles, collect rice, buy three armies, and then the other five would be face down. These are placed on the bottom of the board in a random order. And that tells you the order with which the actions will be resolved in a turn. As the actions are resolved after all the planning, after we do the first action, the sixth card is flipped up. And after we do the second action, the seventh card is flipped up and so on. So you see what's going to happen as you go throughout a turn. But when you're planning, you only know the order in which the first five are going to happen, which makes this decision making very difficult and interesting. What do you need to pay attention to? It's very important when the attacks happen. It's important which attack happens first, the A attack or the B attack, because that might decide which one you do where. It's also very important when you get the money. When that money card comes up is extremely important because that may depend on which of the building actions and buying more armies actions you can actually do. So knowing or not knowing when you collect money is vital. Because here it's time for an important rule. If you plan an action, if you say a province is going to do an action, you must do it. 
And you may not want to do it because you may want to use the money for something else. But if you say you're going to build a castle and that castle card comes up, you have to build the castle. So if you can do an action, you must do the action if possible. So the order of when the action cards come out is very important. The other thing that's very important is where to collect your resources. Now there's some of the actions you're going to skip. But you almost always want to collect rice and money every single turn. Because if you don't, you'll probably have some problems. A couple things to keep in mind when you collect resources. The first thing is those revolt markers. You can only take rice or money from a region once each year. Because if you get a second one, you'll get a second revolt marker, which means you're going to have a fight on your hands. At least once a game, someone does this by mistake, and it's really funny, and we all laugh at them. But sometimes you might do it on purpose, simply because you really need the money or the rice, and you got to put those peasants in their place sometime. We'll get you. The second thing you need to consider when you're collecting resources is how safe is that territory from attack? Because here's the other thing to consider. If an opponent attacks one of your territories and you lose that territory, you're also going to lose the action. And that's why the order of the actions is very critical. If someone attacks my province where I'm collecting money and they beat me, I have to give that province card to him. And in so doing, I'm forfeiting the action that I took there. And so if that was my seven treasure chests that I needed to buy all my armies and buildings, that will be a crushing blow for me this turn. This is a critical piece of the game. Make sure you collect resources from relatively safe places that you don't think you're going to lose on your turn. The next consideration is to spend money or to save your money. An important thing to consider is that you don't have to do actions with all eight of your provinces. You can simply keep them in your hand. This is where there are blank cards, and those blank cards are used for this purpose. You have five blank cards. The top of these cards are blank. And these blanks are used to slot in on the actions that you're not doing. And in this way, you can keep secret from the other players the actions that you're not doing. Remember, you have probably eight provinces, and there's ten different actions. So you would slide those two blank cards on the ones that you're not doing. But also, you may skip one or two of the other actions. Probably the building actions, or maybe buying some of the other armies. Because money is really tight. And sometimes it's good to just save your money and wait for the next turn. Or you simply just may not have the money to do it. So you're going to fill those empty actions with blank spots. And the final thing about planning these actions is there's actually an 11th box. And that is the turn order bid box. On the blank cards, the top is blank, but the bottom actually has a number of treasure chests on it from 0 to 4. And you're going to place one of these into the turn order bid spot. And that's how much money you're willing to bid to choose your own turn order. And the turn order can be very important because as those actions are revealed, each action is done in turn order. This is most important on those attacks. When the attack card comes up, we do the attacks in turn order. First player one, then player two, then player three. Sometimes it's really good to be able to attack the opponent first, and sometimes it's really good to be last because then you can see what everybody else does and pounce on something that's open. So this turn order, as each action is resolved, is determined by this turn order bid. And it's good to be able to have choice of this position. But money is really tight, so it's hard to spend a lot of money on bidding for turn order. So you're going to decide how much money, 0 through 4, you want to bid. And that'll depend on how important it is for you to choose if you're going first or last, of course. 
A final interesting note is if you have a province that you're not doing anything with and you don't want to bid one, you can put the province in the turn order bid spot and that province is considered half a money. So if a couple people bid one, you bid a province and the other people bid zero, you're going to get to go in the middle there because you gave up a province that you didn't do anything with. It gives you a little edge on the bidding. So that about wraps up planning your actions. You're going to choose all your provinces, put them down on these 10 different spots for actions, buying armies, collecting resources, moving or attacking, buying buildings. You're going to consider the order of the action cards, figure out when you want to collect resources, decide when you want to save money by putting those blank cards down, and you got to place a bid for turn order at the same time. You're only going to do this six times, but each time it can take between five and 20 minutes trying to decide where to do each one, because this is really where all the strategic decisions of the game come into play. And it's a lot of fun trying to figure out what is really your best move with the provinces that you have. And that is how you plan your actions. Now, several times I've mentioned combat. Either you're going to attack an opponent's province or a neutral territory, or those stinky farmers may decide they've had enough with you and try to kill you. Let's talk about how combat works and how we use the Cardboard Tower of Death. The Cardboard Tower of Death. So all combats are resolved using the Cardboard Tower of Death, or the Cube Tower. And if you've never seen it, what it looks like is it's a six-inch tall cardboard box, and it has a couple of slats on the inside of it. And players are going to dump cubes in the top, and some of the cubes are going to come out the bottom into the plastic tray, whereas some other cubes will get caught on those ledges. And the cubes that come out of the tray resolve the combat. What is cooler than that? Now that sounds kind of lame, but it's pretty much the most awesome board game thing ever simply because it makes for really exciting combats. So first of all, why do you want to initiate a fight? Well, if you start a fight, it's probably because you're trying to take another province. And it's good to take more provinces, because provinces are worth victory points at the scoring round. And also, of course, it's going to give you another province card, which is going to let you take more actions. If you have more actions, 9 or 10, that's great, because you could use all the actions there on your board. If you get down to too few provinces, down to four or five, because all the other players have taken yours, you're not going to be able to take a lot of actions, which will really handicap you in the game. So there's three times when a battle could happen. One player could attack another with those A moves or B moves. Players can also attack the empty areas of the board, which actually starts a fight. And there could be a revolt in an area, which happens two ways. If you have a province that gets two revolt markers, or if you don't have enough rice during the winter round, which we'll talk about in a bit. So how do these battles work? So let's say I want to attack Clem Flapdoodle. I have a territory with five cubes in it, and Clem's adjacent territory has three cubes in it. So the resolution for the move A comes up, and so I decide to attack his province. Remember, I have to leave one behind, so I can only attack with four. So I take my four cubes and move them into his territory. So we take all of those cubes. We have seven cubes. I suggest using a cup because it's a heck of a lot more fun. So you take those seven cubes. You also take any cubes that are left over in the bottom of the tray. You put those all in the cup, the seven cubes and the leftover tray cubes, and you shake them up and you dump them in the top of the tower. And you see what comes out. Let's say that I am red and my opponent is blue. We compare the red and the blue cubes that came out of the tower. The other cubes don't matter. 
Let's say that four of my red cubes came out and two of Clem's blue cubes came out. I win because I have more cubes there. Of course, some of these armies kill each other. Since it's four to two, his two cubes kill my two cubes. So both of us take those two cubes and put those back in our stock. I had two cubes left over, so I get to take those two cubes and claim the province. I take those two cubes, I put them in the province, and Clem Flapdoodle has to take his province card and give it to me, which is especially painful if it's a province in which he hasn't done the action yet because he's going to forfeit the action. So when you fight another player, you take all the cubes and the cubes in the tray tower, and you put them in a cup, and you dump them in the top of the tower. You compare the two armies that are fighting Whoever has more cubes is the winner. Say, for example, I was very unlucky and only one of my red cubes came out and three of Clem's blue cubes came out. My one cube would kill one of his cubes and he'd still have two cubes left over, so he would successfully defend the province. His two cubes would go back in the province and he would get to retain his card. Make sense? Of course, the other thing that ends up happening is if I put cubes in and they don't come out for that battle, sometimes I store those cubes up and those armies will pop out mysteriously in another battle. I may end up with more cubes than I originally dumped in, which is always a nice surprise. And you say, hey, where did you guys come from? Oh, well, guess I win. A couple other details on battle. If there's a tie, say there were two red cubes and two blue cubes that came out. In this case, anarchy reigns in the province. And the peasants rejoice! Yay! The peasants burn down any building there, and they're happy because their evil warlords have all killed each other. And so any revolt markers come off of the province as well. Clem would lose the province, his province card goes back to the bank. So usually this is a bad situation for everybody. If there's a tie, all the armies are dead, all buildings are destroyed, and all revolt markers come off. And the peasants have a little peasant party. Got no samurai warlords. Hey, we got no samurai warlords. Hey, we got no samurai warlords. Hey, we got no samurai warlords. Speaking of farmers, let's talk more about those farmers. Hello. If you attack a neutral province, there are farmers there, and they're not going to be happy about that. So you must face one evil, intimidating, mean, green cube. The green cubes represent the farmers. So you would take all the armies that you're attacking with. Say I had a province with four of my red cubes, and I attack an empty province. I can only bring three of those. I have to leave one behind. I take three of my red cubes. I get one green cube from the bank. I also grab any leftovers from the bottom of the tray. I put it in a cup, shake it around, and dump it in the tower. And I have to defeat the green cube. The same way that I fought another player. If I win, I claim the province. I get the province card from the bank. Hooray. If I lose, well, the farmers just fight me off. The green cubes never go on the board. Whenever green cubes come out of the tower, if they're involved in a battle, they simply go back in the bank. So you can fight green cubes a couple of times if you attack a neutral empty province or if you have a revolt. So this is when you try to get rice or money from a province that already has a revolt marker on it. It gets its second revolt marker and those farmers decide to kill you. Get out! The farmers get one cube for every revolt marker. So in most cases, that would be two. So the player has to defend with the armies he has there, and he has to fight against two green cubes, and you have a fight. If you win, you get to keep your surviving defenders. If you lose, the farmers rejoice. There's anarchy. The province clears, and the remaining farmers do a little conga dance. We got no samurai warlords. We got no samurai warlords. But remember, the green cubes never go on the board. 
When farmers are in a fight, win or lose, they always come out of the tray into the bank. There's one other time where the farmers can have an effect. If a player is attacking another player, say I'm attacking Clem, and in his province he has no revolt markers, the peasants are happy, or at least not mad. This guy doesn't beat us as much as the other ones. And so they are friendly, and they fight for the defender. So if there are no revolt markers, the farmers are friendly, and they count for the defender. You don't add any green cubes to the cup, but there might be some in the tower already, and if you roll those out, those green cubes come out, they count for the defender. They also, of course, would be killed first. I gladly give my life for my only semi-cruel overlord. So let's review fighting. You're going to want to attack more provinces to get more points and to get more actions. You're either going to attack another player or attack a neutral province in which you'd fight one green cube. Sometimes you could have a revolt in which you have to fight as many green cubes as there are markers. Remember, if there's a tie or the farmers beat you, that's going to be anarchy in a province and the province will clear of buildings and revolt markers. And the farmers can also help the defenders if there's no revolt markers in a province. And that's how combat works. A couple important notes about good cube tower etiquette. The cube tower is by far the most fun part of the game. So I have a couple rules, at least when I play this game. First of all, you need a good, hard, clear plastic cup. Mine has a golden gopher on it. And whenever you fight, you put all the armies in this plastic cup. Remember, also, always pull the cubes from the bottom of the tray before you fight, which might be a consideration before you start a fight. So you put all those cubes in that plastic cup, and you put your hand over it, and you shake it good so it makes a good, loud, clanking sound. And as you're preparing to throw them in the tower, you must go into sort of a, a deep, meditative state in, in which, you know, you, you could make a, a sound. You know, something like that. Just a good, you know, just sort of build up your samurai energy. And then you forcefully, yet carefully, launch the cubes into the tower. As you do so, you must make an appropriate Japanese-sounding cry. You know, something like, Shoryuken! Or, Pikachu! Or, Wasabi! To propel your armies to victory. Honestly, this really helps, trust me. A couple other things of note. You're never allowed, of course, to peek inside the tower. It's always sort of an interesting mystery how many of each player's cubes are in that tower. You have to be very careful not to bump the playing table. You may even consider putting the tower on a separate table because at some point somebody's going to bump it and some of the cubes are going to spill out. And lastly, I always make the rule that if you are the attacker or you are getting revolted against, you must throw your own cubes in the tower. If you allow someone else to throw your cubes, you're not really participating in the game. So throw your own cubes. But that's enough with combat. So you know how to plan your actions, which is 95% of the game. You know how combat works. The only thing left is to pull it all together, look at the full details of the turn, and talk about how scoring works. Full game sequence. All right, so there's a few more steps to the turn other than just planning your actions and resolving your actions. There's a few setup things that you have to do at the beginning of each turn. Let's look at the full phases of an active round. The first thing you do is you lay out the action cards. There are the 10 cards, and you shuffle those up, and you lay out all 10. The first five you lay out face up. The last five are face down. Those are the cards that say attack A, build three armies, collect rice, how the first five actions will resolve, and the five actions that you don't know where they are. Next, there are special ability cards. 
Each round you're going to get a special ability. And these are laid out in the turn order slots. You randomize them up and you place them in boxes labeled 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Because when you bid for turn order, you're going to select a turn order spot, but you're also going to be selecting a special ability. So if I choose slot 2, that means I'm going to go second in the turn order, and I'm also going to get whatever that special ability card is. And it's usually just a little bonus. Most of the time, it's more important to choose the turn order that you want, but sometimes getting this little extra special ability can be really nice. If you don't care about whether you go second or fourth, then you would choose based on the special ability. The five special abilities are one free cube when you attack. If you attack someone, you get an extra cube from your bank to throw in the cup. Then there's one extra cube on defense. Whenever you get attacked or revolted, you're going to get a free cube to defend with. Then there is one extra money and one extra rice. When you collect money or rice, you get one bonus. And finally, there is when you buy five armies, you actually get six armies. So normally you pay three bucks for five armies, but if you have this one, you get an extra army cube when you take that action. They don't have a huge impact, but it's another little interesting decision you get to make when you select your turn order. Next, players will plan all their actions. And like I said, this might take 10 or 20 minutes for all the players to decide which province is going to do which action. They're all going to do it at the same time based on the order of the actions that are coming up. And you wait till all players have completed that. They're also, of course, going to place their turn order bid. Next, you decide what event is in effect for the round. For each of the two years of the game, the first four rounds and the second four rounds, there are four event cards, and one of which is going to take effect for each round. They each have real minor effects that impact the gameplay for that turn. And you don't get to know which one is going to affect the turn until after you've planned your actions. But you do know one of four possibilities that are going to happen. I won't go over all of them, but some of the things that they do is they make revolts from the peasants stronger. You're not allowed to attack provinces with temples. It may limit or increase the amount of rice you're able to get. So at the beginning of the first year, you're going to know these four cards, and one of them is going to affect each of those rounds. So after everyone's planned out all their turn, you're going to shuffle up those four cards, and flip one of them over, and see which one is going to affect that round. And of course, in the following round, you're going to shuffle up the three of them and choose randomly one of those three. Then it's time to decide the turn order. Everybody flips over their turn order card to see how much that they have bid, and they're going to pay that amount. Whoever has the most gets first pick of which turn order slot that they would want. One, two, three, four, or five based on what order they want to go, first or last, and the special ability cards that's in each slot. If there are any ties, those ties are broken randomly. Say we both bid two, we take our samurai cards, these cards that represent which player we are, it has the color on them, we shuffle them up and we flip one up. Whoever wins gets to choose his slot first. And you mark that with those samurai cards, you place that samurai card on that slot on the board, replacing the ability card. So that once everybody's done, it'll be very clear, you'll be able to look up at the top and see the turn order. Remember, someone could bid a province, in which case that is worth half a money in the bid. Now it's time to carry out the actions, now that we have the turn order. So say the first action listed in the order there is collect rice. So whoever is first in the turn order would collect rice, and then whoever's next would collect rice by getting a revolt marker, moving themselves up the rice track, and so on. And they reveal that by flipping over the card they have on the rice bowl. They only flip over the cards you do one at a time. So you don't get to see what the other players have chosen until that event comes up. 
which is pretty important. Don't flip over all your cards when you start resolving actions. Only flip them up one at a time. Now, for most of these actions, it doesn't really matter going through the turn order. So players can take them simultaneously in order to speed up the game, which you're going to want to do. Remember that if a player chose an action, he must do it if he has the money to do so. And if you take a move or attack, you have to move at least something, even if it's just one cube to another province which you already own. The only ones where you're actually going to want to go through the turn order, and where that's going to be most important, is on the move and attack cubes. And I suppose also the buy one army and move, because this could stage people up for future attacks. So you're going to want to do that in turn order. Because obviously, if I attack you and take your province, that province, you were going to attack me, it does matter who goes first. Also, if you attack, you may leave a region behind you vulnerable, and I'll come in and take that region that you left virtually undefended. And so you do the first action. After you're done with the first action, you flip up the action card for number six, so you know what's going to come sixth. You do action two flip up the seventh action, you go through all ten of the steps until you've resolved everything. And that's the end of one round. These rounds will be the longest part of the game. Each of the active rounds will take probably 20 to 30 minutes to complete. The scoring rounds will go much quicker though. So let's talk about the scoring rounds. First of all, feeding your people. This is what you need rice for. You're going to be collecting rice throughout the three active rounds because you need one rice resource for every province that you own. In addition, before you feed your people, you will lose some rice. Remember how there are those four event cards? On the top, there are events for the active rounds. On the bottom is the rice shortage. And so one of those four cards is going to take effect in the winter round. It's going to be a negative amount of rice. Those negatives range from one to seven. So you will need one rice for each province that you have, plus the amount of this shortage. So say the shortage was three and I had eight provinces, I would want to have my rice marker all the way up to 11. But because these event cards disappear randomly one at a time, you'll probably have a range of how much rice that you need, but you won't know exactly until we get to that winner round. So usually you want to be comfortable so that you'll have enough even if the worst one comes up. This is why you probably need to collect rice each turn. What happens if you're short? Then you're going to have some revolts on your hands. There's a table on the board that shows you, depending on how much you're short, how many revolts you're going to have on your hands. So everybody is going to subtract their rice and see if they have enough. If they do not have enough, they're going to figure out how much they are short. You're going to go through and turn order and resolve the revolts. This will probably happen to one or two players on each of these winner rounds. You'll look at the table, and they'll have to deal with one, two, or three revolts. They'll mix up their province cards, and another player will randomly select the number of revolts based on how much rice they're short. And before you have those revolts, those provinces are going to get more revolt markers based on how much rice you are short, either one, two, or three more revolt markers. Then you're going to have to resolve those revolts and see if you can hold that province. And it's important to note that this happens before the scoring. So if you're short of rice, you could lose a very valuable province and lose victory points. So you take those farmer cubes and the number of cubes you have in those provinces, you throw them in the tower, and see how many armies you lose, or if you even lose the whole province. And you resolve all those revolts in this way. Then whatever's left gets counted for scoring. The scoring is pretty simple. You get one point for every province you control. You get one point for every building you have in the provinces that you control. And these two things should be pretty close. Most players will probably have about the same amount of provinces and about the same amount of buildings. 
The final piece of scoring is where you really can make up gains and get ahead of the other players. And that is a one, two, or three point bonus for each region by having the most theaters, temples, or castles in a region. So there's five colored regions on the board. Say there's the purple region. And you look and you see who has the most theaters, temples, and castles. And so you see, all right, who's got the most theaters? All right, Clem, you do. So you get a one-point bonus. Who has the most temples? You get a two-point bonus. Who has the most castles gets a three-point bonus. So there's a three, two, and one-point bonus in each of the five regions. So that's 30 points up for grabs. This is generally how players pull ahead of the other players. So it's one of the most important parts of winning the game. And of course, the castles give you a bigger bonus because those castles are more expensive and so on, down from temples and then theaters. What happens if there's a tie? This bonus is reduced by one point if there's a tie. So zero points for the most theaters, one point if you're tied for the most temples, and two points if you're tied for the most castles. And that's it. That's all the scoring. You're only going to score twice in the game. If you're in between year one and year two, before you start year two, you reset your rice track. Your rice track goes back to zero. You're not allowed to carry over any rice. And all revolt markers come off the board. All the peasants are happy again. Yay! Before you beat them again. No. And you do that whole process all over again. Players plan three rounds. You check and see if you have enough rice, and then you score the provinces. And at the end of the second year, the player with the most points wins. And if you have a tie, the tiebreaker, which comes up pretty often in this game, is who has the most money. And that player will be called Shogun! and will be the winner of the game. Part 3! The Hamster. How to win the game. Alright, so here's where I give you a few strategy tips on being successful in this game. I've got seven tips for starting Shogun strategy. Tip number one! Resource management is critical. You need to make sure that you're collecting a decent amount of rice and money. And make sure that the provinces that you choose for those are safe. Meaning that they're probably not going to get attacked or collecting rice and money happens before the attacks. And then when you're spending your money, you really have to carefully consider, do I need to buy this or what should I spend money on? Because you don't have a lot of extra money. Don't waste money on buying armies that you're never going to use. Or a castle that someone's going to just take over. Tip number two. Buildings win this game. The person who's going to win this game is the person who has the most buildings. Most people probably have a fair number of provinces. So you need to be building buildings or taking over other people's buildings in order to win the game. You also need to pay close attention to who's getting the bonus in each region as those bonuses are pretty much for the deciders. So if no one has temples in the red region, sometimes you can get a quick, easy bonus. You, you know, build a temple, and with one temple, you're getting three points for that building. Two points for the temple bonus and one point for the temple itself. Next, if you build a building, you should be prepared to defend it, especially those expensive buildings, the castles. You should make sure that you have... A lot of troops in that area or nearby troops to prevent someone from getting a quick, easy, cheap castle by swooping in there and claiming your bright and shiny new castle. Tip number three. The game is only six turns long. 
You don't have a lot of time to move around cubes and set up attacks. You should kind of plan out your three turns. All right, what am I attempting to do here? Am I going to build a cluster here? Am I going to try to move over and take over this one or two regions? You're not going to be able to take over a whole lot of the board. You only get 12 moves or attacks in the whole game. So plan out what are you going to do. So try to think, what do I want to try to accomplish before that scoring round occurs, given the time that I have? Tip number four, build an area of control. Just like in most of these types of games, it's good to have a cluster, an area of adjacent provinces where you have a lot of armies. This allows you that if someone attacks one of your provinces, you have adjacent armies to come in and swoop back and reclaim that territory. You may also be able to establish protected provinces. That means you have a province where no one can get at an attack unless they go through another province which because of the limited time in this game is huge. It takes a lot of time to get in two regions in to take a territory. What this also means is you might have a province or two that's just all by itself, which you may want to just collect resources from and willingly surrender when an opponent attacks it, as you probably won't be able to defend it in the future anyways. Tip number five. This is not a war game. Even though attacking is a lot of fun, you don't have to attack twice per round. Just because you can start an attack that has like 20 cubes in it and throw it in the tower and it would be awesome, it probably isn't your best move. If you're really trying to win the game, you want to optimize your situation. And that means taking minimal losses for maximum points. So usually going in and taking as many of those neutral territories as you can early in the game is a good thing as those are quick and easy points. Also, you're going to want to look to take over opponent's provinces that aren't very well defended or that will give you a good point reward in that you're stealing their building to make it worth the losses that you're going to take on the armies. Find ways to get the most points with the fewest amount of losses. And at the same time, protect what you already have. Sometimes the best option is to sit and simply defend the territory that you've already created. Tip number six. Do what the other players aren't doing. Look for empty areas of the board. Look for, especially at the beginning of the game, try to decide, all right, where am I going to sort of set up my headquarters? I might have one big area where I'm trying to really collect a lot of my armies, or I might have two separate areas on the board. And you're looking for areas of the board where the other players are, are not that interested in, if possible. Also, of course, you're going to want to build buildings that other players aren't building. No one's building castles, you're going to want to build castles. Theaters are often a good option, because if nothing else, you you spend one money and you get one point out of the deal no matter what. And maybe you'll get that bonus point. Tip number seven. Here's the trickiest tip of them all. When you throw the cubes in the tower, try to throw them in the tower in a way so that your cubes come out more often than your opponents. It takes a little practice, but you know after you've played the game 10 or 20 times, you will get no better at this than when you first started. So that's it. Those are my tips for the game. I know that you'll have a lot of fun exploring this one, planning your actions, developing your armies, and smashing them into your opponents. This is a game that I like to play, and I, I don't necessarily even care if I win, just because the whole experience of the game is such a ton of fun. I know that you'll love it just as much as I do. So I wish you the best of luck in preparing to become the next Shogun!
Part 4! Footnotes. So, some final footnotes. There's a few small rules I realized I skipped as going through the editing here. When you're moving, you're always moving to one adjacent province. Now, there are some sea lanes on the board, and these are marked by dotted lines. And for purposes of movement, these are considered adjacent, so you can move along those sea lanes. Also, one thing that I don't think was quite clear is that after there's a revolt, if those farmers are put down, they don't suddenly become happy. They are still just as mad as they were at you before. So you do not clear the revolt markers after a revolt. So it's possible to get more than two revolt markers. Say, for example, you steal rice, and then you steal rice from them again the next turn, and there's a revolt. And then the following turn, you steal rice from them again. On that following turn, there will be a revolt again as long as there's two or more revolt counters. And in this case, you would have three farmer cubes trying to beat up your army. The only time the revolt markers clear is if they defeat you and then they have their little peasant conga line. Or if it's the end of the year and then they forget all the cruel and terrible things you've done to them all year. There's a couple things you need to do to prepare before you play your game. First of all, you have to set up your initial provinces. The game comes with an initial starting setup, and usually I recommend that people use these starting setups, but this one I don't. Here's the reason why. The basic strategy for the starting setup is very easy to explain. It's pretty intuitive. You, you tell the players, the idea is you want to get a lot of your armies as close together as possible. Also, you have this chart, and you want to have some territories that give you some money, some that give you rice, and some that give you building spots. So that's very easy to explain. And the second thing is, is that this starting setup experience is really a lot of fun. It's really like a mini game of Ticket to Ride before you start playing this game of Shogun. In fact, I've even done this setup process before I've even explained how to play the game and just giving them those 10 seconds of strategy. And then afterwards, I can explain the game and we actually have pieces on the board and so the explanation will make more sense. What you do is you take the deck of province cards and you flip two up. And whoever you randomly decide gets to go first either takes one of those two choices or they can take a random card from the top of the deck. They have seven choices, seven, eight, or nine choices on the front of their mat. They're going to divide their starting armies up into these groups of between two and five cubes. And they select one of those groups of cubes and they place it in that starting province and they take the province card. So you refill the choices back up to two for the next player, and he decides whether to take one of those two or one from the top. And you keep going around the board until everybody has their seven, eight, or nine provinces to start the game. This setup process is really a good time, and a new player isn't really going to be handicapped as long as you explain you're trying to get your armies close together. They'll get the basic idea. And even though that this doesn't thematically make a ton of sense, it provides for an interesting game. You know, I don't know why these samurai warlords have control of provinces in random spaces all over the board. Sir, how do you wish to start your army? I have a cunning strategy. We will take control of random locations all over the country. Yes, sir, excellent idea. Random locations all over the country. Sir, the other warlords have thought of similar plans. They have taken control of random locations all over the country as well. These other warlords are wiser than I initially thought. Alright, so this idea of having control of random locations across the country is a little silly. 
but it makes for an interesting game because the initial part of the game, players are trying to form these clusters even though they have armies all over the board. The next thing you have to do is you have to load the cube tower with some starting armies. So you get seven cubes from each player and you get 10 farmer cubes. This is very important because it makes the initial battles a little bit more interesting as each player will have a couple cubes in that tower. And it also makes those neutral fights more interesting because there'll be a couple of those farmer cubes hidden in the tower. So you never quite know how strong those farmers are going to be. So how you do that is you get seven cubes from each player and ten from the farmers. You put them in the cup, you shake them up, one player dumps them in. Any of them that stay in the tower you're happy about, any ones that get dumped back in the tray go back to the players, the farmer cubes go back to the bank. So that will be public information at the beginning. You'll know each player has you know one, two, or three cubes stuck in the tower, and you'll know there will be a few farmer cubes in there. But that doesn't really matter because you're never quite sure how many will come out. But it's an important part of starting to play the game. The next thing, a cool part about this game is that the game comes with two maps. There is a sun side and there is a moon side. The game recommends for some reason that you play with the sun side for your first game or two. And you're going to use different province cards depending on which side that you use. What's the difference between the two sides? Well, the difference is, is that the moon side, the board is more open. It's easier to get to all the different regions. Whereas the sun side has some more protected areas. It's easier to hide sort of in corners on the sun side of the board. And there's a lot of players who don't really like that because it takes a long time if a player holds up into a corner to get in and attack that corner. And I can see why. I think that the moon side is strictly a better version of the game. So I recommend playing with the moon version. Every once in a while to mix it up, you might want to try the sun side. But personally, I prefer the moon side. Next, let's talk about those event cards. The event cards all sort of do different things, and there's a great player aid that explains all of them. And the best way to do those is when you start the game, you're going to want to flip up those four, one of which will affect each round. And you're going to want to go over what could possibly happen with each of those and the range of rice that could be lost. Now, one thing I want to note about them is two of them affect rice and two of them affect money. For example, one of them says a max of five money. That means that even if you should collect six money from a province, the most anyone can collect from a province is five. There's an opposite one that is minimum money of six. So even if you were to collect three money, you'd actually get six money, which is kind of nice. Now, those special ability cards come into play after the event cards, which can be very important. So say you have a maximum of collecting five money. You still can get your bonus one money from the special ability. So one player will get six, even though most of the other players will only get five. There's one nasty event card that reduces the amount of armies that you get. Instead of getting five armies for three money, you only get three armies for three money. And there's that special ability that gives you six armies for three money. That counteracts this nasty event card. So keep in mind that those special abilities are a way to supersede the event cards that can come in and ruin your plans. Some final few notes. Let's talk about Wallenstein. Wallenstein is the earlier version of this same game, Shogun. So what's the difference between Wallenstein and Shogun? Well, Wallenstein had sort of a medieval theme and took place in Europe, sort of feudal lords trying to take territories in Europe, but it's almost exactly the same game. The only differences are those special ability cards that you choose in the turn order, like the plus one cube for attack, plus one for defense. That was something that was added to Shogun. The other big difference is the map. And this is why a lot of people say that they prefer Wallenstein. 
Of course, Japan, the board for this game is long and skinny. So sometimes it's hard to get to different regions of the board, and sometimes you might have two or three players on one side of the board and two or three players on the other side of the board, and they don't really interact. When you play Wallenstein, the board is more square, so all of the players really are forced to interact with each other a little bit more. And so that's why some people prefer the Wallenstein version. But it's not really enough for someone to justify owning both games, unless you're independently wealthy, or just really love this game system. My personal opinion is that the theme, the Japanese theme of Shogun is a lot more fun than sort of the medieval theme of Wallenstein. There's not a ton of games that have that Japanese theme that Shogun does that are as excellent as this game is. And you get that little added mechanic of the special ability cards, which is kind of neat. So if you're going to choose between the two, my personal opinion is that you get Shogun, but that's a decision you'll have to make for yourself. And this is actually a choice because Wallenstein is being re-released. So as whereas it was out of print and a little bit harder to get, now you'll really be able to choose between either game. And the final note is that an expansion is coming out soon for Shogun. I find it hard to believe that this game needs something added to it, as there's so much going on in this game as it is, and it's just a great game the way that it is. Does it need more mechanics and more things going on? I guess we'll have to wait and see how that expansion pans out, but as this game is, it's a pretty wonderful game just as it is. Every time I have played this game, I have had a great experience with it, and everyone I've played it with has always enjoyed the game. It's a longer game, so it's not something that's going to hit the table a whole ton, but when you do, it will definitely lead to a very memorable experience. So I hope that this podcast has helped you to learn or to learn to teach this game and that you have a lot of fun with it. I'm going to leave this episode at that. As you can hear, my voice is still recovering from a recent cold, so I should probably stop right there. I think I've babbled long enough about this one. If you want to hear me babble more about board game topics, you definitely should go check out the Ludology podcast. Subscribe to that on iTunes. Don't forget to check out our first video produced by Randall Rasmussen, How to Play Video Tigris and Euphrates, linked there at the Guild. And of course, you're going to want to stay tuned to the Dice Tower for all the newest news and releases with Tom and Eric. But I'm going to have to shut things down here at the How to Play Studios for now. Thanks for being patient and waiting for this episode. I look forward to the next one. I very much appreciate all of your support. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Ryan Sturm of the How to Play Podcast. This has been Ryan Sturm for the How to Play Podcast. How to Play is written, recorded, edited, produced, promoted, and financed by Ryan Sturm. How to Play is not affiliated with any game vendor or game company. If you like How to Play Podcast, I count on you to support it. You can help out by joining and participating in the guild, donating financially to the show, writing reviews or rating the show on iTunes, help talk up the show in your game group or on the forums at BoardGameGeek. We have no contests, no gimmicks, no advertisements, no plugs to game websites or companies. All of the show's content is free of all bias, save for one, my own, and that is due to your own continuing support. Please consider supporting the show in some way today. I love to hear feedback from you, and I can be contacted through our discussion forum on the Guild at BoardGameGeek, or I can be emailed at howtoplaypodcast at msn.com. This podcast home on the web is www.howtoplaypodcast.com. Thanks again, everybody, and until next time, I hope you will learn, teach, and play great games. 
Thanks for listening. The How to Play podcast is part of the Dice Tower Network, the premier board gaming media network, featuring Ludology and the flagship podcast, The Dice Tower. For more information on these shows and much more, please visit www.thedicetower.com.